0: Oh, synced! Nice I like that. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Happy New Year,
1: and everything in between, and
0: first bit of January. Yes.
1: Yeah, and a bit whenever late. this comes out, I think it's a bit late in January to say Happy New Year, but you know, we'll let ourselves many on.
0: happy returns. Whatever <laughs> it is you've been returned, congratulations. Like your Christmas presents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me Ellie and me Ben, and we like to think that we've just given all of you new listeners out there an extended period of time to catch up on a year's worth of episodes.
0: Yeah, hello to Rebecca out there who has listened, she sent us an email this morning, actually, to say that she uh, has listened to every episode three times. Wow,
1: that's scary. Yeah, you get a gold badge for that. That is scary. (laughs) I think that that's resurrected the idea in my head that we should run a little quiz, like a botanical quiz at the end of every series to test ourselves more than anything. Because I think, Rebecca, you're probably going to know our episodes more than we do ourselves. Yeah, probably. We are also learning as we make this podcast and that's what makes it so enjoyable. So we're just really pleased to be able to share all the information with you if you've been nice enough to tune in. So what's coming up today?
0: Well, we've got our sightings. Normally, we only talk about sightings that we've actually seen in the gardens that we're working in. But because we have... sort of been all over the place over christmas we're going to talk about some of the things we've seen in various different nature reserves and when we're out and about that's a bit of a treat really isn't it because we saw some really very very exciting things we saw some rare stuff actually which was quite exciting for us and then what else have we got coming up we've got the second part of our interview with the fantastic dr ian bedford um, he gave us an interview a couple of months ago, so you will have heard the first part of that before Christmas. Then we're going on to our native plant of the week, which this week is the delightful dog rose.
1: Yeah, and heads up to everyone, I didn't do the research on this one, Ben did, but honestly about every 15 minutes he kept turning over to me and saying, oh my goodness, the dog rose is so complicated. So I feel like today is going to be a nice juicy reintroduction to the world of botany.
0: <laughs> today we are going to learn some new botanical <laughs> terms, everybody.
1: Start. <laughs> start the year as we strap mean in. to go on <laughs> strap in. Yeah. I love that
0: <laughs> anyway moving on our sightings for this week
1: Yes, what have we been seeing? I will start with things we've seen and heard in gardens because there's been some really fantastic bird life and I don't think I can move without hearing a nuthatch.
0: Hearing the what sound? Well, I... The sound that you call a 1980s laser gun.
1: <laughs> it does sound like Go
0: on. that too. Okay. I think that's good i wouldn't know (laughs) yeah
1: i think i'd probably recommend that everyone actually googles it yeah (laughs) it doesn't go on my interpretation but that's what i hear when i hear the nuthatch and yeah they're just really lovely birds i actually got really up close and personal with one this was this was on a nature reserve it was just above my head and it was just hammering into some bark above my head amazing that was really beautiful and we've also we just seem to be seeing a lot more gold crests in gardens recently in the gardens we work in day to day
0: yeah that's true and just before christmas we went to was it two or three of our clients gardens and they all said the the day that we turned up that just before then they had the first jay that they'd ever seen in the garden yeah. And it's something we've heard other people say as well that Jays are coming more well, closer into urban areas. They're in sort of suburbia and they're coming into gardens more. Um so yeah, that certainly seems to be true for some of our clients. Which there was is... one
1: on a central reservation on a busy Nottingham road yeah. last year. I, I was I almost crashed.
0: Yeah, and there's things <laughs> like um Well, we were reading in the RSPB magazine about the however many thousand percent increase in uh, wood pigeons in urban environments as well, compared to sort of the...
1: It's over a thousand percent, I
0: think, of increase. Nearly all the pigeons that come into our garden, we're right in the middle of Nottingham, are wood pigeons now. So things are obviously changing. I
1: think we've got the thousand percent increase in our small urban yards. I mean, (laughs) they are just nailing the ivy berries at the moment. I feel a bit sorry for the one blackbird that lives around here, because it's just probably thinking oh i want some two
0: <laughs> they are hilarious though
1: <laughs> i don't know how they balance they're no, so they're fat amazing so <laughs> fat
0: <laughs> what else have we seen uh
1: well moving on to nature reserves we we took a little trip up to north norfolk to the coast there in the very famous and well-renowned wash so it's a big estuary lagoon estuarine lagoon and we just had the most fantastic day clouds of not memorating in the sky in the sunset wasn't it just amazing to see
0: yeah it was incredible we were right on the coast i've forgotten the name of the nature reserve is it titchwell
1: i think it is actually i think it's titchwell yes you're right not Titch yeah marsh. the
0: rspb site that's right titchwell marsh well nature reserve and we yeah we were there for most of the morning and then we went over to Snettisham, which is another RSPB place, and that's where, if any of you have watched um, Spring Watch or, well, actually Autumn Watch,
1: which I hope all of you have, yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> then they often when you see these murmurations of both knot and starling, they get really, really good ones at, at Snettisham. Yeah. Um, so we went over there to see. But at Titch Well, we saw our first ever harriers. We saw marsh harriers there, which Quite were close. incredible, male and female. Yeah. And we also saw avocets and pintails oh. oh my which god which are it type was amazing. of uh, what are they they're a duck aren't they yeah Pintail it's a duck. ducks. yeah yeah, yeah never seen pintails before. Duck.
1: very very attractive duck yeah i must say yeah we came home with big smiles on our faces on new year's day
0: it was wonderful yeah turns out if you want to see interesting birds <sighs> go to an rspb reserve <laughs> <laughs> We're not like sponsored by RSP, by the
1: way. <laughs> yes, no, it's absolutely fantastic. Definitely recommend that.
0: We actually worked for a couple of days between Christmas and New Year's um, for Ellie's old boss, actually. And we, uh, we, well, when we go and work for them, we actually stay in their house and they've got a field next door. And we had the best barn owl sighting ever. And they were saying that it was coming into the garden or over the garden. And it was just, well, it was sort of dusk, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was flying I don't know. At its closest point, fifty
1: meters away or less. Oh, closer yeah. at its
0: closest. Yeah, it was stunning. We just watched it. You know, sort of swooping really low and, and hovering, and hovering, and... and it it caught a few um, yeah. different prey items. I think they call them, don't they? So, yeah, some unfortunate vole or something found. Absolutely incredible, though, because it it was dark but I've never seen one that close you know you could look right into its eyes with binoculars it was yeah it yeah, took fantastic. us about
1: 20 minutes or more to actually go into the house and say hello <laughs> I mean they saw us outside in their front garden going oh my goodness look at this but they've seen it quite a few times having you know they live there so it's there a lot and yeah we, they had to coax us in didn't they with wine yeah that's true. <laughs> <laughs> take us away from the wildlife
0: mince pies yeah <laughs> <laughs> right we've got some plants that are looking good as well at the moment it's quite a few plants that are looking good at the moment yeah we're going to give you a really long list this time because when it comes around to winter time often people well people use this horrible phrase of putting the garden to bed but winter gardens are one of my favorite types of gardens i go on about them all the time but there's so much that you can have looking good in your garden at this time of year and of course well we've actually seen this uh, on the nature reserves in fact Um, quite a few of the Queen Bumblebees will wake up from their hibernation on mild days and they'll go out and they'll just forage a bit and then they'll go back. Um, so actually having some sort of floral resource in your gardens over the whole winter is is really valuable
1: it's really really important I've learned a new iris name which I wasn't aware of is a winter flowering iris and it's called the iris unguicularis I think is how you pronounce it and it's commonly known as the Algerian iris and it has a very typical iris flower Uh, the one that I've seen in the garden is purple and it's just absolutely stunning quite big as well actually The, the flower itself was probably about 10 centimeters in diameter so that's a really beautiful one to look out for. And then there's the, the very go to plant for winter flowering, and that is the wonderful Mahonia actually they did a strange thing this year they all started flowering in sort of end of November beginning of December in some gardens
0: in fact we mentioned this on the podcast we did we? mention
1: it but the one that I'm thinking of started in December and I thought oh goodness is there going to be nothing left by January but it is in full spate still now still going still going. It smells incredible when you're stood downwind of it and I haven't seen any emerged bumblebees just yet but I know that they do use that they, that love, particular it. Shop. they, they absolutely absolutely love it
0: they absolutely love it there's quite a few types of mahoney you could grow in your garden actually there's the more sort of prickly spiky ones and then there's another one called soft caress which is quite a nice one. It's got soft foliage. Mm, uh, if you foliage. don't like the traditional sort of mahonia-looking one, and then there's a ground cover. There's the aquifolium, which is absolutely fantastic. It's really, really tough. Can be grown anywhere and flowers really well as well. And
1: edible berries as well for us and the birds.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of edible berries, of course, ivy is looking fantastic at the moment with those glistening berries that you yes. said the pigeons. When the pigeons haven't eaten them all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but this is why you, you grow ivy. Well, you grow ivy for all seasons, really, but they just look stunning, especially yeah. when the rain comes down and it catches the light on those sort of blackberries. Yeah, yeah they gorgeous. do look really
1: beautiful. But also, Calicarpa is another shrub which I highly recommend. And this is the one that has, it doesn't actually look like much in the summer, but in the winter, it has these amazing bright purple tiny little berries that gather together on clusters on the stem and i've been actually following a few posts on the gardening for wildlife uh, brackets uk putting wildlife first facebook group which
0: links in the show notes links in
1: the show notes and david rayner one of the admins it has been basically tracking what eats the Calicarpa berries and he has mentioned a few times that the black cap it really enjoys eating the berries, but he also posted a video of a robin taking them as well. So that was really good to know. Mm, and again, it's really interesting looking berries at this time of year.
0: Yeah, I hate it.
1: Oh, do you? Oh, god, I didn't even know that.
0: I can't stand them.
1: Really? I, Why?
0: Yeah, I don't know. What the, did it the, ever do to you? Because the, they've got this metallic purple <laughs> berry. It's interesting. Too bright. It's Too bright. unusual. But uh, I have no, I I don't like them. <laughs>
1: not a fan of metallic purple. Okay, you learn no. something new about your partner every day. <laughs> yeah,
0: grow this instead. Another thing that we've seen looking good at the moment, which is uh, one of the winter flowering clematis, uh, clematis a And there's quite a few varieties. There's Wisley cream, which is a cream one. There's another one called freckles, which if you look inside the clematis, it's sort of a bell flowered clematis. And if you look inside, it's sort of freckled with sort of a maroony mm. colour. Um, so you get
1: not mind maroon? Just not metallic. Yeah, but I,
0: I'm really bad at describing colours. You'll be better. What colour is it? Sort yeah, you're of right. It's purply, like a marine a yeah,
1: deep purple. It's, yeah. it, it's more uh, mute than the callicarp berry, I have to admit. So. Yeah.
0: But it's a, be- it's a beautiful, beautiful it's plant. It's and a it's, very classy plant. Yeah, it's lovely. Because it's flowering now. Yes. Yeah, and people often don't realise that there are clematis actually mm. that will flower all year round.
1: Quite rampant ones as well, but in a good way. Like They, they, they do give really good cover for nesting birds later yeah. in the year as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also, this is actually one garden that we're in today, had one of these clematis, and next to it was a Prunus autumnalis, the winter flowering cherry. And together, because I actually got close to have a sniff, they both smelt really, really good. And it was in a courtyard garden. And I think that the scent of both was just sort of collecting where I was stood, because it was just like being washed with beautiful floral scents, which is, I think, again, another thing that people don't really think about in winter, Having that nice scent around you—it's
0: the best time. Mm. It's absolutely the best. Smelling things all come out in winter. All the daphnes in the late winter, <laughs> the um, winter sweets—absolutely gorgeous. All the um, witch hazels. This is just this is my favorite <laughs> because it's cold and I hate <laughs> the hot weather. This is my absolute favorite time for gardening. <laughs> oh. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Anyway, that one. Yeah, is Prunus subhertella. Autumn yes. If you're looking that up. Oh. Final one that I wanted to mention was, again, in the nature reserve, I saw uh, a grass, uh, it's Deschampsia um, which is often a cultivated one that you can buy in loads and loads of garden centres. It looks fantastic, like lots of the grasses, they hold their, hold their stem over the winter. Um, quite a few of the cultivated grasses are native and they, they've been bred you know they've been cultivated but we are this year going to do a few grasses as our native plants of the week so yes, yeah watch out for those
1: especially as we did a whole episode on grasses in gardens we yes, just haven't exactly. we haven't focused in on a specific, a specific one yet so yes look out for that one more thing i will also add crab apples we have witnessed blackbirds eating them from a tree in a customer's garden yes particularly small fruited i don't know that actually the name of the variety but the frost had got obviously got them and made them a bit softer and this blackbird was having a bit of a feast so that's good mm. Before we move on to the next part of our Ian Bedford interview, we just had a little bit of podcast update because we've had a little chat over Christmas about what we're going to do for 2022 and we decided that we're going to make it a monthly podcast for all of you listeners. And this is simply just so that we can actually make sure we get an episode out when we say we're going to get an episode out, as well as doing
0: all our day-to-day gardening activities. But then we're going to carry on with doing guests, but the guests are going to be as bonus episodes, and then we're also going to do our Q and As as bonus episodes. So there's going to be various bonus episodes as and when throughout the year, and we're going to carry on the book club as well. Yeah, so I do going love to come the book
1: every club. Now and again. Oh, I was going to mention one book while we're talking. Yeah, go on. Um, Ben has basically become a bit of a widow and I just I just want to put this out as a recommendation. I was given it as a present from a good friend Gareth Richards who's also been an interviewee on this program and he gave me a book called Much Ado About Mothing and I cannot put it down and Ben can't get my attention when I'm reading it because this is so good but from reading it it's basically about a guy that goes out and looks for all of the notable and also rare species of moth around the uk over the course of a year is absolutely fantastic but i have a new year's it's not resolution it's an aim of a moth that we have to go out hunting for okay it's rather charmingly known as jeff in the book it's got a name jeff so it's very easy one to remember but its latin name is alabonia jeffrella which is obviously where the jeff bit comes from and it is a really common and widespread moth and its caterpillar eats dying bramble stems which is a really good thing to be aware of isn't that interesting but it's actually a micro moth which is why it's not one that i don't think i've ever noticed but as i say it's widespread but it does involve one thing ben we have to camp out in some woods because apparently he flies very very early in the morning
0: (laughs) (laughs) You I'll use a moth trap. <laughs> you
1: just don't go to sleep when we camp out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Can't, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that is one of my aims for this year. Gonna spot a Jeff.
0: Final thing we wanted to say as an update is we've been asking for donations to the podcast, to our GoFundMe called Get the Wildlife Garden Podcast Some Gear. Well, we're coming up to a year of that being open now so we're going to actually close it in the next episode so this is your final chance to give us a donation um if you'd like to there are links to in the show notes all the money that we raise is going towards the the costs of running this podcast the hosting and different things like that um, so please if you have been thinking about donating go ahead and do it in the next couple of weeks and then we'll do the final readout and thank you to everybody in the next episode
1: We've been absolutely blown away by all of your generosity so yet again thank you so so much for everyone that's donated. It really has helped a lot in terms of keeping us going with making this podcast.
0: Right so we're going to go back now to Ellie's interview with Dr Ian Bedford.
1: Just to bring it back to a garden setting, I feel like I know the answer that you're going to give to this one. But do you think there is a role for any pesticides in, in a garden setting?
2: A hundred percent no. <Yay. laughs> and I, 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 I've asked this question at virtually every talk I've given. And I've said, you know, is there anybody in the audience who could tell me or well, give me a good reason why you would use a pesticide, you know, a, a chemical pesticide? And nobody has ever told me I've, I've had people who come up and say oh well uh, i don't I, I use organic pesticides i use pyrethrum but then they don't realize that pyrethrum is a broad spectrum pesticide it's just the fact it comes from dalmatian chrysanthemums you know it's classed as a, a, a product that you can use for organic growing but you spray it in your garden and you're going to be killing the butterflies the bumblebees the, the honeybees the ground beetles everything because You know, it it is a very, very toxic broad spectrum pesticide. Admittedly, it doesn't last very long when it's sprayed. It breaks down very quickly. But, you know, the synthetic versions of it, you know, the pyrethroids have been made so they last longer. But definitely, you know, do not, if, if you want to protect the wildlife, do not use pesticides that have approved for organic use. The sad thing is they don't have a picture of a butterfly or a bumblebee on their label. They have a picture of an aphid. Or a cabbage white caterpillar, or a mealy bug, or something. But you know which people class as the dreaded plant pests. But they don't show us the what else know, the it rest. kills. Exactly. You know, and, and then you know you've got those neonicotinoid pesticides. You know the systemic ones, and you know three of the the five classes have been banned. But you know we still have one called acetamiprid that's out there for that people can use in in products, but. You know you, you look at the back of the the label of a product and to try and find out what that active ingredient is it's, it's very difficult to find out whether it is a toxin or not
1: so do you think labeling is a is a big area that we could make progress in in terms of that? a bit like um smoking kills being printed on packets of cigarettes do you think we're at the early stages where that should be the case but just isn't yet
2: i, I just wonder if that really does work I'm <laughs> going back to the smoking thing i know that uh, horrible pictures of of the inside of people's lungs, you know, that were on on some of the packets, and I still had friends who were buying the packets and and smoking, you know. And you think, look, dear me, <laughs> but you know, but being a non-smoker, that's <laughs> a different attitude. But um, but no, I I think the way forward is what I tried to start before um, lockdown, and that was to visit garden centres and to say, look, I'm I'm happy to advise on setting up a green zone where you know the people coming through that door—they don't have to look at the back of the labels or whatever. They can immediately go in one direction to a part of your your garden center where all the products are free of any harm to the environment. It's a green area, and also the plants. So you can guarantee that the plants you're selling in that area haven't been treated with these long-lasting systemic pesticides, because you know we had that revelation from um, Sussex University's research that. Um, over 70% of the plants that were labeled as perfect for pollinators contained systemic pesticides, which so many people, when they found that out, were, you know, jumping up and down in anger, you know, to think that they'd, they'd been conned into buying things and putting them in their garden and then, you know, watching the bees feeding on uh, on something that's potentially could kill them. So, But the, the choice, I think, has to be one where it's very, very simple that people go through the door of that garden centre and they say, right, I'm heading for the green zone. You know, and then people who who don't really want to follow that path can go into the other zone and buy the you know the the, the, the multi-purpose bug killers and and whatever you know.
1: I really like that idea as well, because I feel like going to what is usually with a garden centre, a small family owned business to ask them to stop selling something is probably quite a big ask. Whereas if you just reorganise the shelves, that's slightly different, isn't it? So they could just have these areas and then hopefully there are enough people like you and I wanting to actually buy and do the right thing going to that uh, that area and then maybe the garden centre would see also that there's a demand for it and then be able to sort of expand that area over time
2: absolutely uh, garden centers are fabulous places you know and you can spend the day there you go out and have a you know something to eat lunchtime and a wander round and you know a lot of them have got sort of uh, you know um, aquatic areas where you know, the kids can go and see the fish but um but as I said uh, yeah uh, the aim was to try and encourage the garden centres to do this before you know lockdown started and I had Yeah, plans, I've been invited to speak to to, to a number of them, but that all got knocked on the head. But um, one or two that I did speak to, they said, you know, we'd love to do this. We'd love to have all these um, products that don't harm the environment because we know it's what our customers want. But they have to think about the advertising side of things. And the companies that produce the chemical products are the ones that have the money to advertise their products you know, and then people will go to the garden centres to look for those products. Yeah. What what happens when they go through the door is that they then could have the choice of going to the green area or whatever. But they can't afford to lose the, you know, the the the, the products, the well known products, that are drawing people into that garden centre in the first place.
1: Yeah. And with twenty-three million of us, uh, it's difficult to get that to get the message across to everyone at the same time, as well, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and these are people's businesses, in people's livelihoods, so they've got to rely on people going to those garden centres. The other thing is with, with these sort of peat-free composts. As well, you know, when I ask people to sort of you know just put their hand up in an audience and say who actually looks at the labelling on the on the compost bags, very few people do. They're just going to buy a bag of compost. So yeah. again, you know, I think we need to have. Different zones in these garden centers where people can say right i'm I'm wanting my garden to be good for wildlife good for the environment I'm going to go in that direction
1: yeah it's a fantastic idea and I, would you be happy with us doing that to our local garden center obviously we'd mention you as the as the man that masterminded it <laughs> <laughs>
2: no no I think absolutely and I'd welcome you know more people to do this and in fact you know go, going back to that thing about the the, the pesticides that have been applied to plants for pollinators the garden centers around me here are absolutely fantastic you go and um, ask them about a plant you say you know has this been treated with a, a systemic pesticide and if they don't know they'll phone up their suppliers because you know suppliers have to keep records of what pesticides are put on their plants and you know they'll they'll tell tell me if it's had a, a neonicotinoid on it or not and um, uh, you know one of the garden centers grows a lot of their own stuff and they don't use any chemicals which is great so i'll go back again and buy those plants.
1: Excellent. So, yeah, I think we said that in a previous episode, actually, probably because of hearing you say it on another podcast. But quite a lot of us in Britain in particular are a little bit reticent or hesitant to ask questions like that, that we might feel are a bit intrusive in a way. I don't know if it's a British thing, but I feel like if more of us did it, then the message would certainly be put across more strongly that there is a demand for it.
2: Yeah, well, from the garden centres that I have spoken to, they they welcome that engagement with their customers because you know it tells them you know what what people want you know but they do have to be very mindful of the fact that they still need to have their business advertised you know by by the big boys in the in the game
1: yeah indeed so moving on from i'm considering those the sort of negative questions moving on to the more positive if you do have a creature that's in your garden that has its population has uh exploded to a sort of pest proportion that's how we like to phrase it do you have um do you have any recommendations i know this is a really broad question because there are so many different species that you might consider to be a pest but do you have any maybe pick a couple of examples if you if you do have um uh an ian bedford endorsed way of maybe hel- helping your garden flourish in the face of a yeah a pest
2: i, I don't like using the word plant pest. you know, the no, herbivorous no, folks I, yes So I think they can be split into three categories. So you've got the herbivorous bugs that actually physically chomp through your leaves, the ones that make the holes in the leaves. Well, in some ways, they're sort of telling you where they're active. So, you know, if you see, if we take hostas, we know they're being eaten by a mollusk. Invariably snails, even though poor old slugs get the blame for eating the hostas, but it's invariably snails that will. And they feed at night. So, the trick there is to just by understanding their life cycle, either use something that's like a, a barrier that works, you can put it around them, but also find a way that you can trap those slugs or snails when they hide away for the daytime. And the best way I've found for, for catching snails now is to have reasonable sized um, flower pots. And I put old bits of crocs in, that broken up um, terracotta pots, and particularly those um, terracotta feet that go underneath um, patio pots. They've got that sort of concave bit. Snails absolutely love to tuck themselves away into that. And if you have a pot full of them, it's, it's remarkable how they get in there. And, <laughs> t- and I, every single day I can guarantee I'm going to collect any, you know, at least half a dozen snails from an area, and then you can move them to another area. And the same with the slugs. I mean, we know that um, 70% of our slug species aren't herbivorous. They feed on you know, the, the decaying stuff and whatever. But the ones that are causing the problems, simply lay a piece of damp cardboard or an old piece of um, carpet that's that's wet around the area where the problems are. And in the mornings, lift it up and collect the slugs from underneath. And you'll find that the majority of them are those little um orion hortensis the little black garden slugs that have the yellow underside or there'll be the um reticulata the 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 gray field slug the gray one with the mottling on its back they sit up you know sit underneath this damp area because they're waiting for dusk the next dusk to come out and start feeding again so gives you a great opportunity to collect them but um and then then you can do what you like with them but you know the, the problem is that people see slug damage or well, a lot of people see slug damage and they think oh, it's got to be a big slug because <laughs> the damage looks fairly <laughs> severe. And, of course, the poor old uh, black gardens, uh, the black um, slugs and the red slugs, the uh, Orion Atters and the Orion Rufus, get targeted. And these are the ones that like to you know, feed on decaying matter. And uh, they're easy to see and uh, easy to kill as well. And I hear all sorts of gruesome ways that people have... <laughs> Had disposed of them from stamping on them to cutting them in half with scissors and that. But, uh, so, but they're good slugs. You know, the only problem is we do have an invasive species called the Spanish slug, which could be mistaken for them, but you'll know if you've got the Spanish slug because your garden will just disappear. Okay. The, the, the slugs will just eat everything. Mm-hmm. Whereas the native good slugs um, will just eat decaying stuff. <laughs> an Interesting thing though, like that, you know, when you grow courgettes, the yellow flower at the end when it uh when the courgettes growing that sort of starts to decay doesn't it and you've got this well those d- big black slugs love eating that mm. and of course you know if if the little um pesky slugs have nibbled your courgettes during the night and then you come along and see this great big black slug at the <laughs> end eating the flower you think it's the one that's done the damage to your courgette well it's <laughs> it's not it's just mopping up that dead flower
1: <laughs> i think that's it there's a there's a big case for mistaken identity when it comes to to things that are eating things in your garden, this is why woodlice are so mal um, uh, maligned. <laughs> but they don't actually do anything really. They're, they might eat th- other things that are dying already, but they don't generally cause a lot of damage to your to your plants. Yeah, so
2: actually, I mean, woodlice um, are actually are nocturnal feeders, and um, they have to sort of um, hide up somewhere during the day because they're actually the only species that we have of. Um, land-based crustaceans they actually have gills underneath their bodies wow. which dry out very very easily and um what they do is they, they they tuck themselves away in all these little sort of nooks and crannies which invariably, invariably can be damaged areas on plants particularly things like hookeris, where you've got they've been sort of hollowed out by by something and the, you know like vine weevil or something well the, the little um uh, woodlice will get in there to, to hide up during the day so of course you break it open and you find lots of woodlice you think they're the ones causing the damage
1: definitely um yeah they're sneaky and they can fit into all sorts of little gaps as well
2: <laughs> yeah yeah we'll have huge amounts of them that get under the plant pots on the patio here you yeah know, because they're literally just you know keeping out of the way during the daytime and they have to keep in a moist environment because of those gills that are underneath their bodies you know otherwise they'll die
1: so, based on, on on those examples that you've just given, I guess that there's a there's a big thing to be said for just educating yourself or observing what's going on in your garden first. If you've got a problem that you think needs to be solved, and then actually, uh, yeah, educating yourself around what might be causing the problem. I, I say problem in inverted commas because sometimes it's fine to have a few holes in your leaves in your plants, isn't it?
2: Yeah, well, it, it is. I think you know, and there's so many. Um, really good um, guides out there for people to have. I, I, I recommend the the Field Studies Council guides that you can buy. They're um, they're they're fold out laminated sheets. You can order them online. They're only three or four pounds each, but yeah, you know, they give you a great um, you know resource uh, to identify what you, you've got in the gun Because instead of like you, know, you mentioned earlier, you know, just seeing a bug and thinking oh it's a bug it needs squashing, take the time to identify it. Because, you know, moving on to the the, the group of pests, which are the sapsuckers, simple ways of controlling aphids, for example. You see aphids starting off perhaps on your roses in the springtime, and a lot of people think, oh, time to get the, the bug spray out. But you need to remember that they're there so that their whole suite of predators and parasites can start their life stages. So the ladybirds will come in and they'll lay their eggs in the areas where those aphids are starting to feed same for the lacewing same for the hoverfly that will be laying their eggs but also the blue tits they'll need to collect aphids because when their chicks first hatch they can only eat little tiny insects so aphids are great for them but if you go out and buy you know a broad spectrum bug killer to kill those aphids off you're wiping out you know the ladybirds the lacewings the hoverflies and unfortunately with the predators because they're you know they're further up that food chain the predators and parasites they don't go through you know they don't reproduce so quickly in fact you know some of the ladybugs bees will only have one generation a year whereas aphids because they've been the food source of things for so many millions of years have perfected the art of reproduction Mm. and they keep churning out live young all the time you know a, a single aphid can give birth to 12 to 15 live young a day (laughs) <laughs> and they're live young. Have live young inside them.
1: <laughs> You're just going to make people it's more just... scared Ian. <laughs> <laughs>
2: No, but you you, you need yeah. you need that suite of predators and parasites yeah. to keep them on top. But you can help by keeping their numbers low. It, because if you haven't got large numbers of ladybirds or you know the the aphid predators in your garden, because you know a lot of gardens will have you know been using broad spectrum pesticides for many years, and and perhaps you know the um, the, the the predators and parasites numbers are, are low. Well, then you can become a predator of them, but in a safe way. And the way I can can reduce um, aphid numbers on plants is simply by using a fine spray from the hose. I've got one of those multi-spray connection things on the end of the hose, and you turn it around to the flat fan setting, which is a horizontal (laughs) um, fan shape of little tiny water droplets that come out really quickly. They'll knock the aphids off the plant, but they won't damage the plant. Yeah. And um, do that two or three times a week. Every time you perhaps sort of go out in the gut just take the hose pipe down and, and and only target the plants you're worried about because a lot of plants can cope with aphid infestations. And they're brilliant for allowing those ladybirds to build up their numbers in. So, yep. um, again, it, you know, it's just thinking about the, the whole um, garden ecosystem really. <laughs> Making yeah. sure that you're allowing things to develop. And eventually when you get to that point of you know a balanced garden, it's a lot easier to keep control of it.
1: Exactly. It's just it's just having the the sort of being able to hold your nerve long enough for those for the cavalry to arrive. That's how we describe it. And a lot of um a lot of what we do day to day with our work is to just reassure our clients and just to tell them not to panic if something looks a little bit awry and a little bit amiss. So yeah, I think there's a there's a big thing to be said for that. Also, we we actually found a ladybird larvae on my arm one day in the van, so I <laughs> I actually bought it home and we have a Veronicastrum in the garden. Beautiful, it was in the middle of flowering, but it was covered in aphids at the time, and I just popped this little ladybird larvae on one of the stalks, and I'm absolutely not exaggerating, but a couple of hours later, the aphids had all like scarpered all been eaten couldn't tell which and this little ladybird larvae was just sat there looking really triumphant so it really does work it really really does work
2: (laughs) it does because you know the aphids have um, alarm pheromones as well so when they're under attack they send out these alarm pheromones which like like you said you know the the other ones will fall off the plant or they'll move away from it because they don't want to get eaten you know
1: exactly it's um
2: it is just really just that understanding You know all the creatures that you see in the garden, and and once you start to do that, you realise just how wonderful the natural world is. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, I I used to always try and encourage the kids to just sit out in the garden in the evenings rather than, yeah, watch telly or something, because you can sit there just watching all the things around you and just fascinated by it. You know.
1: Well, it sounds like from your uh, grass snake experience that you've basically got a David Attenborough show in your back garden, so. (laughs) Ah! Who needs TV? That's what we always say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Just going to have one final question, and this is moving away from the animals in a way um, and towards plants. And we have heard you talk a little bit about this before, but what do you think about the idea of companion planting? You often see this as being a solution to stopping your carrot, root fly, etc. There's lots of different things that gardeners tell each other that are good to, to, in terms of what you can plant to deter other insects and invertebrates. What do you think about that?
2: Mm. I give a talk on companion planting. Oh, do you? <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I, 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 and I explain that it's not going to be just giving a list of plants that can be grown alongside other plants because there's an awful lot of information out. There's lots and lots of books on companion planting. But if you think about it, it's not used widely and particularly not used commercially in, 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 to any great extent and that's because the information is often um conflicting from book to book what what and i think it's one of the reasons i think we haven't got any sort of clear uh, gu- guidelines as to how to use companion planting is down to the variables the environmental variables there are so many of them that need to be taken into account and an example i give in my, in my talk is that if you were to grow a shade loving vegetable, things like a say a broccoli that will attract um mealy cabbage jay feed will attract mealy white feed will attract the large white butterfly but um if you look in a companion plant but one of those books will say well then grow garlic next to it but garlic relies on um the allicin that's in it that's that's the thing that actually repels and for high levels of allicin to be produced and and we did some research on this when i was at john and this the garlic needs to be grown in very dry sort of almost arid condition it really concentrates that down well it's no good growing your garlic in a shady sort of environment alongside that because it won't produce the active ingredient which you know so what you then do you look for another book and perhaps one of them will say um Oh, you plant mint next to it. Well, mint will then attract other sort of pests. And particularly, you know, we, we, we get things like uh, another whitefly species that will come onto to mint. And that can then move off into your greenhouse to, <laughs> to, to, get, to infest your, your tomatoes. So there's lots of things like that. You know? and, and you have to take into account so many different factors that it's very, very difficult, I think, to get anything sort of tangible, any tangible data out of doing a companion planting um, study. But it's probably the safest thing you could do in your garden. It's a great way of experimenting and seeing what will work for you. I, I always advise people to you know if they want to try and just um, keep their garden as safe as possible for the environment have a go but make sure that you do things in a small scale because you are if you are going to try and use a companion plant to keep a certain pest away from, say a, a, a food plant you know a, a vegetable it's no good having a large patch of the vegetable with a few of these companion plants around the outside mm. because the pestle simply just fly straight over and land but if it's going to work they need to be very very close to those plants and you know just i always say just give it a go because yeah. you're not going to lose anything and if if nothing else be aware of the fact that herbs produce those aromatic oils They've they've evolved them over millions of years to protect them from being eaten by a broad spectrum, a broad suite of, herbivorous bugs. Mm. Certain things are specialised on them, like the rosemary leaf beetle, for example, which will, which will eat you know high high levels of camphor mm. um, plants, which have high levels of camphor in them, like uh, rosemary and lavender. But you know, in the majority of cases, the plants that have these um, these oils repel many many pests from a bit of a response from eating them.
1: That's it. I think my understanding of it is that we've almost applied a sort of linear understanding to something that is um, highly complex. So we'll often say, if you plant X, then Y will happen. But then... Within wildlife gardening as a whole, we're also encouraged to increase biodiversity of plant life as well, which is kind of how I think of companion planting. It's less about one thing stopping or helping one other thing. It's just more about yeah increasing the biodiversity of plant life and therefore increasing the the biodiversity of insect life or sorry invertebrate life and that that's kind of how i see it you know i don't think of it as this will solve that problem because i don't think it always will
2: no be they right <laughs>
1: Oh, well, yeah, I think that's probably uh, coming to the end of of the questions, Ian. It's been so wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. It's Um, been a
2: great pleasure. Thank you.
1: Keep up the excellent work as well. But before you go, we do tend to ask all of our interviewees, what are your top three tips to encourage wildlife into your garden? Another big question, I know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I, I would say, first of all, it's look at your garden and see... How suitable it is to the surrounding area, because it's no good having, say, a garden set up with all desert loving plants. If you if you live very close to a woodland area, you know, try try and replicate what is out there around you so that any of the wildlife that happens to live outside your garden can actually feel comfortable coming into your garden. You know not not necessarily a set up home but it it's just like I mentioned earlier you know it 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 makes your gardener perhaps a, an extension to the the natural world out there and a stepping stone for the wildlife to move into new locations so so yeah, so you know just be aware if you've got like I've got you know a river down about half a mile away so I make sure I've got quite a lot of water, woods, so I've got lots of trees so i grow i grow and lots of cover and things like that the other the next thing is to make sure your garden's got structure so. The structure covers access so allowing things like hedgehogs, frogs and toads to move between your garden and the neighboring areas you know don't block it off you know because not all creatures fly and also to make sure that structure offers protection as well from natural predation because it has to go on we know that but don't make it too easy for the sparrowhawks to come down and wipe out all your little birds by putting your bird feeder in the middle of the lawn, for example. Yeah. So mine are hung, yeah, <laughs> mine are hung up out under a, a prickly prunus tree, so that you know I still get sparrowhawks attacking them, but they certainly don't have an easy job at catching the little birds. And then the third thing would be making sure your garden offers um, sustenance. It offers. Food for the herbivorous bugs, and that's everything from an early source of pollen and nectar for perhaps the butterflies that are coming out of hibernation in the spring, for the bumblebees that are starting to set up their nests, and then, and also you know the aphids, as I've mentioned, you need to allow some have some tolerance of the aphids and the herbivorous bugs, and another one you know to be aware of are the the winter moth caterpillars, which. All right, they'll be making holes in the leaves of lots of little of uh, the trees in the spring, but they're vital for, for a lot of the birds, like the blue tits, again, because you know they have to catch hundreds of these little tiny caterpillars to feed their their young. And if we go and spray the trees because they've got holes in the leaves, you know, it's it's got this knock on effect of depleting you know uh, the food for the uh, creatures further up that food chain. So, um, yeah, so basically, suitability, structure. And sustenance. And once you've got those all in place, things should go well.
1: Wow, that's excellent. I like the fact you've distilled it into three words as well. It's very good. (laughs) I can tell you do this a lot. So if people would like to see you give one of your talks or or want to keep track of where you're talking and, and, and what you're talking about, how can our listeners do that?
2: probably the easiest way because i i've got a web page that uh, t- tells me a little, little bit about some of the talks that i've got going at the moment and also my availability throughout the uh the next year and uh, the best way of getting to that is to just go on to google and type ian bedford speaker and you'll see the comes up uh, talks for garden clubs click on that and have a have a look through but uh, say i'm you know very very happy to do zoom talks and uh if it's not too far away, I'm I'm happy to travel <laughs> to see people face to face, which you know is lovely and um, and hopefully perhaps come along to some of the garden shows that I talk at as well. And, uh, oh, and if um, anybody wants to listen to uh, Toby Buckland's gardening radio show on on Sunday mornings, I'm the entomologist who entertains, and I've been doing that for about three <laughs> years now, where I uh, <laughs> I give a um, about a three minute talk on a particular bug each week. And uh, you can listen to, to Toby's show on uh, Radio Devon, uh, 10 o'clock till two, Sunday mornings. But, Fabulous. Uh, yeah. And then I'm on Twitter as well. So I, I, I'll i yeah, happily answer any questions on, on Twitter.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much again for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I will continue to be listening to you on other podcasts, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> uh,
2: it's been a great pleasure talking to you.
0: That was wonderful. Thank you very much, Ian.
1: Yeah, I absolutely love meeting him. More chats required, I think, with Dr. Ian Bedford.
0: Yeah, definitely. As we, well, as he's said in this interview before, if you want to have him come and speak to your gardening club or something like that, then check out his website. Again, links will be in the show notes. I should have said, actually, um, in the last episode, we, if you want to hear more of him, he's on Toby Buckland's gardening show, but that's actually on BBC Radio Devon.
1: Not, not on norfolk.
0: norfolk yeah i got that <laughs> wrong so yeah tune in to radio You can get it on the bbc sounds app so if you want to hear more of him and then check him out there
1: brilliant and now it is time to read out all of your lovely reviews on itunes in what is known as our 60 seconds of self-congratulation <laughs>
0: Clanfield baby says my favorite podcast thank you ellie and ben i love your podcast always interesting you've got the mix right for me science inspiration and friendly i look forward to every episode
1: roberts carlos 1988 says fantastic podcast with two highly likable hosts an excellent podcast hosted in an engaging and highly informative manner i've enjoyed listening and picking up ideas from for my garden it's so nice to listen to people talk about a subject that they're passionate about
0: you do the next one
1: yeah it's my cousin hi Erin E Shuler love it such a lovely inspiring listen Ellie and Ben have created a podcast that was truly needed this year we should all be out enjoying nature in our own backyards and every time I hear a new episode it feels like a lovely nudge to do just that I can't wait to see what my no-mo section of our yard becomes love the introduction audio love the banter love the tips love it all and we love you
0: <laughs> Jenny Hill says what a great podcast really enjoy listening to this uplifting and inspiring podcast listening love. Long- and finding it all very positive definitely on my top five
1: and that is 60 seconds
0: yes thank you very much for leaving those lovely reviews Uh, you can review us on itunes as we said or you can go and leave us a review on our podcast host as well which is podbean so links to both of those will be in the show notes and it really really helps bump us up the podcast charts and gets us into the ears of new listeners
1: yeah thank you very much everyone not only does it bump us up those charts but it's also really really great to know that we're doing something that people want to actually listen to so thank you very much So now it's the moment we've all been waiting for. Ben's been doing lots of research about the dog rose. So take it away, Ben.
0: The dog rose, otherwise known as Rosa canina. One of our most beautiful native roses. It's a familiar sight in hedgerows across the UK, peeking out its pale pink flowers from amongst the thorns between May and July, followed by ruby red berries in the autumn, which are absolutely adored by birds. And squirrels. Yeah, well, all sorts of wildlife, which we're going to come on to in a moment. We have one in our garden ourselves, actually, and we wouldn't be without it. So hopefully we can convince some of you to grow one in your own gardens at home. The common name dog rose is one amongst many others that have been used historically, like cat rose, pig rose, (laughs) and cock bramble. Nice. Mm. And its berries or its hips, as they're known, have been used medicinally for generations with things like rose hip syrup found to contain twenty times more vitamin C gram for gram than orange juice.
1: Wow. That I didn't realise it was that much better in terms of vitamin C. That's yeah. that's good. We should Healthy make some. Stuff. We should make some.
0: Yeah, and it's used in loads and loads of um, skin products and things as well. It's also the county flower for Hampshire. So if any of you are listening in Hampshire, then there you are. You might even have a dog rose in your garden and not know it, as dog roses are commonly used as the rootstocks on which other ornamental varieties of roses are grafted. So if you didn't know, most of the roses that you buy in the shops are a clonal bit on the top, which are grafted onto a rootstock that's been grown from seed, and that seed is often from a dog rose.
1: Does that just make them tougher, do you think? Just Or it dictates how tough they are against how vigorous disease resistant Mm -hmm. how
0: vigorous they are how good they deal with different ground conditions Mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff now if you don't know it it's variably known either as a climber or as a very large shrub rose and it can reach well over five meters high with these scrambling stems hosting an armory of large hooked thorns although the thorns of a rose are botanically actually known as prickles they have a compound leaf made of between five and seven leaflets which are toothed along the edge and of course the reason that they're grown ornamentally is for those clusters of pink or actually even white flowers each of which have five petals and each flower is around 1.5 to 2 inches across and from those flowers they release a really delightful sweet scent it's not too strong but it's a it's a really lovely uh, fragrance if you can get your nose in and give it a whiff.
1: When I was younger, I used to think the dog rose was called the dog rose because it smelt like a dog. So I was very wrong.
0: But apparently, the old folklore says if you uh, it could, the root actually can be used to cure the bite from a dog. Ah. Mm. I
1: mean, not actually. Just... Not current <laughs> medical advice.
0: <laughs> But <laughs> there you are. Now, the chances are you will have seen one, even if you didn't know it, because it grows in a variety of habitats. It grows all over the place from woodland, scrub, and hedgerows, even to cliff faces and riverbanks, and along railway tracks. It's quite happy growing along that sort of scrubby uh, ground alongside railways. It can be found up to 550 metres above sea level in Perthshire, in Scotland, and it's found throughout the UK, although it is found less commonly in central Scotland and in Ireland. Now, like many of the native plants we've discussed, its native range stretches far and wide. It's got a southern extent in Morocco and Algeria. And then from Portugal in the west of Europe, it stretches northwards to Norway and Finland, then through Central Asia and the Middle East via Kazakhstan, Iraq, and Iran, and many other countries besides. So, like we said, you know, just because it's native to us, it's also native to those of other countries too so now we know what it is and where to find it it's time to take a closer look at the sexual antics of the dog rose okay so this is the complicated bit the sex lives of roses are a total mess
1: (laughs) that's a nice description yeah
0: (laughs) We are just going to have to chuck some botanical jargon at you but we're going to try and explain ourselves because things are complicated. So first of all we've talked before about the scientific names of plants being binomial so that's having two parts. The first part is the genus and the second part is the species. So in this case rosa is the genus and then it's followed by the species which in this case is canina okay now what actually counts as that species as rosa canina in particular is not at all clear botanists have and continue to have a great deal of trouble working out wild roses because the evolutionary history of them is not at all well understood and trying to conclude what counts as a species or what's a hybrid between two species is an ongoing task so going back to this binomial system botanists actually divide the genus rosa into lots of different groups at lots of different levels in most cases as we've said the binomial system it runs all the way down from through this sort of family tree and then it goes down to genus and then it goes down to species and then sometimes you have subspecies so that's normally the sort of the the bit between family and subspecies the the sort of realm that we normally deal in.
1: I just want to point out that while Ben's explaining this, he is gesticulating so
0: much. My arms are no waving. None of you can
1: benefit from this. It's, <laughs> I'm enjoying it. It's very yeah. helpful to, yeah, with the arm waving. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Imagine layers. I'm layering the cake.
1: <laughs> yeah. So imagine lots of arm waving. Yeah.
0: Normally we deal in the sort of family to subspecies. Region when we're talking about plants, but roses are different. So, first of all, the genus Rosa is split into several different subgenera, and now these subgenera change from time to time again because it's not clear what's actually going on. But there are at least four in the running at the moment. Of these subgenera, one is called Rosa, so you've got genus Rosa, subgenus Rosa in this subgenus Rosa. There are 11 sections of roses. Now, sections is something, as far as I know, only roses have this division into sections. But I I, I could well be wrong. There might be other things out there. But there are 11 sections in this subgenus, and one of these sections is canina. Within that section, there are three or four subsections, and one of those subsections is also called canina. And in that subsection, there are somewhere between 5 and 20 species, and one of those species is Rosa canina. But when botanists talk about the dog roses, they're talking about everything in that subsection canina. Crystal clear.
1: That's question number one in the quiz, everyone.
0: (laughs) Okay, now we need to understand why this is so complicated and why we need to understand about this. The reason it's so complicated is because of some particular characteristics of dog roses. Dog roses are very quick to hybridise with other rose species. So that means there are lots of intermediates, lots of hybrids out there in the wild. And for a botanist, it's difficult to know what's a recent hybrid and what's sort of a stable species. And this division isn't at all clear. And these intermediates are particularly difficult to trace back to parents Because dog roses undergo something called unequal meiosis. So sorry to all botanists out there for this 30-second hash of reproduction in plants. But let's imagine a plant with two sets of chromosomes. We often talk about the number of chromosomes that plants have. A plant with two sets of chromosomes would be diploid. Now when plants produce sperm and eggs, and plants do produce sperm by the way, those chromosomes are split into two different sets of cells. They split these two sets of chromosomes, so one cell has one set and one cell has the other. So that leaves two individual cells with one set of chromosomes in each, and those we call haploid cells. Now, when the egg with one set of chromosomes is fertilised by a sperm from another plant, those two meet, and then you get back to a diploid. So that's what normally happens in a diploid plant. Dog roses are different. They have five sets of chromosomes. So awkward. Which in Yeah. <laughs> Which in many other plants would indicate actually that they're sterile for reasons too complicated to explain here. But dog roses have a neat trick. So instead of dividing things equally, when the egg and the sperm cells are produced, the chromosomes are distributed unequally. The eggs get four sets of chromosomes and the sperm only one. This means that more characteristics of the offspring come from the female parent rather than the male And this is a process called matriclinus inheritance. And this, in turn, makes it very difficult to work out parentage, meaning distinguishing between stable species and recent hybrids is very difficult. So when botanists go out into the wild, they find all these this variety of roses out there. They all look vaguely like a dog rose. It's really difficult to work out when they find something unique, something new, with some new set of characteristics. Is that new because it's the hybrid between two different parents, or is it actually a unique species new to science? And it's made more difficult because dog roses are both self compatible, meaning they can pollinate themselves, and because they can be apomictic.
1: Ooh, apomixis again.
0: Yes. Yes, we we saw that in the bramble, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. Well, let's describe it again. So apomixis means that a plant can reproduce by seed, so it can actually produce a viable seed without being fertilised. So that's sort of miraculous birth almost in a way. It's actually pretty good party trick (laughs) in the plant world. Yeah. And what this means is that even sterile hybrids, so if one of these dog grows hybrids did actually end up being sterile, so it was impossible for it to uh, reproduce um, sexually, then actually it can still produce rose hips with viable seeds. And because those hips are attractive to birds, and birds eat them and then they poo them out somewhere else, what happens with dog roses, the same as you get with brambles, is these unique hybrids can actually be dotted all over the country because the birds will eat a seed which is a clone of the parent and it would deposit it. In various different places and then you know over years and years they get deposited further and further away from the original plant and so there are possibly hundreds of unique hybrids of dog rows dotting the country and giving botanists really quite the challenge i was
1: going to say i've just got images of botanists sort of tearing their hair out and rocking back and forth on a chair in a
0: dark room well i have <laughs> actually seen this happen once <laughs> <laughs> what rocking back and forth in a dark nearly room? <laughs> well uh, i've only been on one of these but when i went out for a walk with the botanical society they found one of these hybrid roses and they went through all the keys and it didn't match anything (laughs) right so they were all just saying oh is it you know a unique species is it something new well it's really difficult to know it's really <laughs> difficult to know and actually botanists really are doing science on this at the moment so if you want to know more about this then we've included a link to a paper on the bsbi website so that's the botanical society of britain and ireland where they um, produce a paper where four botanists two from the uk and two from the netherlands try to join forces and actually work some of this stuff out so that it really is well worth the read and links will be in the show notes to that but next time you see a dog rose growing through a hedge, just take a moment to appreciate it because it could be a unique hybrid never before known to science. Now, despite the ability to be apomictic, in most cases, the seeds are produced through pollination, through the normal way. And pollination is done by insects. So let's get on to its value for wildlife. Roses especially the large flowered ones are particularly popular with bumblebees like the common carder and the white-tailed bee. You will also see pollen beetles hiding away inside the flowers. Pollen beetles by the way are those uh, little black beetles that you get if you're wearing uh, a yellow t-shirt in the summer you know they come and land on you. The ones
1: that love you when you're wearing a yellow (laughs)
0: t-shirt. So you can find those in the flowers. The leaves are the food plant for the caterpillars of the shoulder stripe and brown tail moths as well as a number of midge larvae Including the Diplolepsis rosei, better known as the robin's pincushion.
1: Oh, we saw some brilliant robin's pincushions when yeah. we were out and about over Christmas. That was another spot.
0: Yeah, they're really, really interesting. If you've never seen one, do go ahead and look them up. They do this weird thing to the plant. So the the midge, it's actually the larvae, is within this, what they call a gall. And it's sort of this protective casing around it but the casing is produced by the plant itself mm. and it's this amazing construction of sort of pinky red like thousands of tentacles coming out
1: like a little bauble ball ball, a fuzzy bauble yeah that's how i think of it
0: yeah anyway look it up look it up because <laughs> it's difficult to describe but yeah that's uh one of the species and of course that is food for something else and lots of the um, solitary wasps will actually come and they'll drill through these ghouls to get to these larvae that are Mm. on the inside and they'll parasitize them now i really wish i could remember the name of the photographer i just saw this online i'm sorry it's gone from my mind but i was on a photographer's website recently and they had a brilliant photo of a flower crab spider and this is one of the species uh, native to the uk that can actually change its color Mm. this photographer got a photo of a perfectly white uh, flower crab spider in a white rose and it was just hiding there, waiting for uh, some sort of unsuspecting creepy crawly to come in before it pounced. It's absolutely beautiful. And then onto the hips. They're well loved by blackbirds. Well, lots of the thrushes, red wings as well. Um, and waxwings too. And rose hips are a significant part of the diet of door mice and many of the small animals as well. And squirrels. and squirrels. I will
1: post the photo of the squirrel happily munching away on all the hips in our garden a few weeks ago. Because it was having a really, really good time. with the pigeons there's not much left in our garden is there
0: so if you want to grow one yourself pick a spot in sun or in partial shade Uh, they aren't too fussy about soil type uh, but make sure they don't dry out at least for the first few years I mean it's just general advice for everything isn't it most trees and shrubs just make sure they're watered while they're establishing Um, don't be put off by the fact that I said they can grow to five meters tall Um, that's when they're scrambling up a tree or through a really, really tall hedge. Um, As a freestanding shrub, you can grow them, as I say, either as a climber or as a large shrub. So as a shrub, they do need some room to breathe, you know, sort of assume a spread of around three meters wide something like that but then get in there every winter once it's established and cut back some of the oldest stems hard I mean right down to about 30 centimeters from the ground so if you get in there every year and cut back say a third of the old stems then none of the growth is more than three years old.
1: Also I don't think you mentioned that the prickles are not only as a deterrent for things eating it but also it uses those prickles to scramble up other plants that's actually the It's an adaptation of the rose, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's a good thing. It's really
1: effective. And that's how it gets so high up into the canopies when you see it in the wild.
0: If you do want it to scramble through a hedge, say, then you can grow it as part of a mixed native hedge. In fact, some mixed native hedging packs that you buy actually have dog rows in them. It's sort of how we have it in our garden because it's actually fighting for space with that that ivy in the back Um, we've got it growing on the end of a a tall wall at the end of our garden actually but if you do have it as part of a hedge then just when you do your hedge trimming just cut it back you know just give it a trim over once a year do remember though because we're doing lots of hedge cutting up at our allotment then if you are doing hedging work try to cut your hedges on a rotation over a few years so that always leaves some long growth for shelter for, for insects and birds and also flower for the following year as well There's only one cultivar I could find on the RHS Plant Finder and that's a smaller variety called Andersonii but really I just recommend growing the species you know the normal wild one so you can get those from reputable wildflower suppliers or actually most of the major rose growers uh, sell dog roses too. You can get them from hedging suppliers but if you do make sure it's UK grown and not imported that's really important or just try growing one yourself from seed it's actually really easy and the seeds the hips are everywhere all over the countryside right now so you can go out and you know just grab the seeds um you can also grow them from softwood or hardwood cuttings but coming back to the seeds each of these methods requires sort of a careful handling you know you want to do it the right way so we'll put links to how to propagate them all those different ways into the show notes too
1: I do hope you all enjoyed that juicy native plant of the week as much as I did. As I said, that was the first I'd heard of any of that research as well. So thank you very much, Ben.
0: You're welcome. (laughs) I hope that came across. I'll have
1: to film you next time you do the arm thing because everyone needs that in their lives. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. So moving on, that wraps up today's programme, but we do have a couple of things to mention. We talked before Christmas about doing another Q&A session on YouTube and we didn't get so many questions to start with, but thank you to long-term friend of the show, Caroline Bocher. She has armed us with many, many excellent questions that are relevant to all of us wildlife gardeners. So we now have enough, thanks to her and a few other people. And we're going to do that on Tuesday, the 25th of January at 8pm.
0: Yes, that's right. So we have a YouTube channel. I also wanted to mention if you did want to subscribe to us on YouTube, if you've got a Google account, then that would be wonderful. And yeah, the Q&A will be live on YouTube at 8pm. But then we will record it record the audio and that will be released as a bonus podcast episode in the next couple of weeks as well. So if you wanted to join us and ask a question then you can join us live on that and just type your question in as we go or if you have a question and you haven't managed to send it in yet then make sure you get it to us before January the 25th.
1: And you can do that on Facebook that's the Wildlife Garden Podcast so find us on there on Twitter at thewildgdn or simply by email which is Podcast at hotmer.com
0: yes I finally
1: learned them (laughs) (laughs) yeah it'd be really lovely to hear from all of you and actually I do need to say a thank you to one of our regular listeners for sending us an actual Christmas present so not only did we have people getting in touch with us but we got sent things thank you very much Sharon Maxwell it was a lovely little gift that we received in the post
0: our next episode will be in a couple of weeks So you're getting two this January, and then we're going over to our monthly slot. Um, But in the next episode, we're going to do a special birthday bash for ourselves, (laughs) celebrating one year of the podcast. So if you have any messages or anything that you want to send to us, you know, Ellie just gave you all the ways that you can get in touch.
1: Yeah, so please do join us for our birthday episode. Be lovely to hear from you. And all that leaves us to say in the meantime is keep exploring your gardens. Bye. Bye.